If you grew up in church, that is a song that haunts you anytime you come to Luke chapter 19 in your Bible. So I just wanted to invite you this morning into my haunting as I spent hours this week studying this passage to figure out how to address the big elephant in the room. If you didn't grow up in church, you're probably better off not knowing that song. So despite the song, which, if we're honest, trivializes the story uh, just a little bit, um, in this account of the wee little man, we see something really important. This story sheds light on the mission of Jesus. It, It helps us see why Jesus came and gives us greater insight into what he's doing in the lives of lost people around us in this city today. This morning, I believe Jesus is inviting each one of us to join him, or perhaps to rejoin him, to to re-engage with Jesus on the mission he's doing here today. So as we take a look at the account of Zacchaeus, um, I believe the Holy Spirit, with the Holy Spirit's help, there's a word that he has for you and a word that he has for me today. So let's pray, we'll ask the Spirit to help us, and then we'll dig into our text. So, Spirit of God, would you do what you do? Would you speak to us clearly, directly, personally, through your word this morning? Spirit of God, I pray that this would be more than just an academic exercise. I pray that the truth of your word, by the power of your spirit, would drop and sink deeply into our hearts in such a way that it affects us and changes the way that we live. So help us see more clearly today, impact our hearts more deeply today, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. So Luke chapter one, you can turn there. We're literally just gonna walk line by line through this story. So starting in verse one, it says, he, Jesus, entered Jericho and was passing through. So evidently, Jesus didn't plan to take a stop in Jericho. He was passing through. But we see Jesus willing to change his plans for the sake of a person in need. Verse 2, and behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. So it's interesting that Luke's first description of Zacchaeus is similar to how we describe people and classify people, right? If I meet you for the first time, one of my first questions is, hi, what do you do? And then from The answer to what do they do, I put them in a social category. Luke helps us see this morning that Zacchaeus was a chief tax collector, and in the category, he was rich. And we learn that he's not just a tax collector, but a chief of the collectors. He was essentially the head of the local tax department in Jericho. And for someone in his field, Jericho was a great place to have this job, as it was a major customs center in the middle of a very important trade route. So knowing that, no wonder Zacchaeus was rich. But here's the issue. Tax collectors in that day, even more so than today, were hated and despised. Their work was considered dishonest and immoral. In that system, tax collectors not only worked for the occupying Roman government, that was bad enough, but they would earn their income through extortion taking more money from people than they were contracted to give back to Rome. They would pad their pockets, essentially, with the money of their own people. So Zacchaeus had gained his wealth at the expense of his fellow Jews. And as a result, he's both rich and looked down upon. 
not only due to his character, but due to his size. Look at verse three. And Zacchaeus was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small in stature. Verse four. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for Jesus was about to pass that way. So because of his work, Zacchaeus is not liked, but because of his size, Zacchaeus can't see through the crowd. So I don't know, have you ever been to, say, like a crowded parade or something like that, uh, or an environment where you have to either stand up on something or put your kids on shoulders so they can see? Last year, we got the chance as a family to go to Disney World, and because I had three daughters under seven, we were obsessed with the princess parades. Like, no joke, we saw three or four of the same princess parade. But the thing about the princess parades is that you literally have to get there 30 or 40 minutes early to reserve a spot along the road. If you want your wee little kids to be able to see what's actually going on, you need to get there early to get up front, or else you're putting them on your shoulders and climbing around people. And the thing about it is that once you reserve your territory, nobody better break in, or there's a price to be had. And I can imagine Zacchaeus similarly trying to get to the street so he could see Jesus, but being told time and time again to, to move on here. You're, you're not welcome here. But that didn't slow Zacchaeus down. He was clearly resourceful and willing to do whatever it takes to see Jesus. So he spots up ahead a sycamore tree like the one shown here, and he begins climbing his way up. Now, if you're an eight-year-old or a seven-year-old or just love to climb trees, this is a dream tree, right? Once you get past the initial challenging part, there's limbs, thick limbs everywhere that you could just have a field day in. But for a full-grown, wealthy Jewish man to climb this tree is utterly ridiculous. In this moment, Zacchaeus is completely undignified. And it's almost as if Luke who wrote just a chapter earlier about becoming like a child in order to enter the kingdom, it's almost as if he's giving us a picture of what that truth looks like. Unless you become like a child, it says in Luke 18, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. So here, picture it. We see this short, shady guy who had climbed the ladder of business and politics, now climbing up a tree, completely undignified, seeking to see Jesus. But that's not the most shocking part of the story. Look at verse 5. The seeker becomes the sought. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to Zacchaeus, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So Jesus walking by, stops, looks up, and says to the rich guy in the tree, come down quickly. I'm inviting myself over. So being led by the Spirit, Jesus already knew Zacchaeus' name, and Jesus knew all about his job and his wealth, his reputation and his sin. But Jesus, in the midst of the crowd, purposefully stops to specifically call Zacchaeus by name. Jesus looks past the indignity of a man in, in, a, man in a tree. He looks beyond his sinful lifestyle, and Jesus sees a man in need lost, stuck in his sin, far from God. So Jesus, full of grace and truth, speaks to Zacchaeus and says, 
I must come to your house today. That's a strong expression, right? Jesus doesn't give him an option to get out of it. This is going to happen, and it's happening today, right now. So come on down, Zacchaeus, let's go. And the amazing fact is, we'll see momentarily, that Jesus doesn't just go to the house of a sinner, he stays at the house of a sinner. And that was radically countercultural. But as we've been seeing throughout this series, that's kind of what Jesus does. He breaks through culturally constructed barriers with the good news of the kingdom of God. And the reality is, for us in this room today who are in Christ, this is exactly what he's done for you and for me. We've been seen by the Savior in the midst of our sin. He's called out to us purposely, specifically, with an invitation to salvation. And he's invited himself over. He's invited himself into our lives to stay with us, to live in us, and to radically transform us. Jesus, our Savior, has initiated our salvation. And when he calls your name, you can't help but respond, which is exactly what Zacchaeus does next. Look at verse 6. So he hurried and came down and received Jesus joyfully. Zacchaeus responds immediately with a spirit of rejoicing. He's overwhelmed. He's blown away. And I can hear him thinking, did this really just happen? All the effort I took to climb this tree just so I could see Jesus from a distance, he has stopped to specifically and purposefully call my name? What the heck? Zacchaeus comes down quickly and receives Jesus joyfully. But then, as we typically see when Jesus engages with lost people, there's a group of self-righteous religious folk who react negatively, critically. Verse 7, and when they saw it, they all do what self-righteous religious people do. They grumble. They grumble and say, he has gone to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. So Jesus is staying at Zacchaeus' home. He's eating at Zacchaeus' table. And the religious people don't like that. So in that day before the days of fast food and microwave meals, eating with someone in their home at their table meant something significant. In that culture, a Jewish man, uh, to, to eat with a sinner at their table was to put himself in the crossfires of condemnation. And perhaps that's even true today in our Christianized culture. You're going where? With who? Haven't you seen their lifestyle? Do you know how those people live? But over and over and over again, we see Jesus eating with sinners at their table. Jesus, I like to say, does mission over meals. It's kind of his thing. So a few years back, I noticed that there were three places in the New Testament where it says, the Son of Man came, dot, dot, dot. The first one's in our passage this morning, Luke 19, verse 10, it says, 19, verse 10, it says, the Son of Man came, why? To seek and to save the lost. Say it with me. The Son of Man came, why? To seek and to save the lost. So that's one reason Jesus came, amen? For we were all lost in our trespasses and sins, but God. 
But if you flip back a chapter to Mark chapter 10, verse 45, we see this. For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So just taking these two verses into account, why did Jesus come? Well, to seek and save lost people, and then to serve the lost people, and to give his life as a ransom for the lost people. That's why Jesus came. But interestingly, there's one more verse that shows us how Jesus came. Gives us a glimpse into his method for the mission. Matthew 11, verse 19, says this. The Son of Man came eating and drinking. Now, it doesn't say the Son of Man came reigning in glory and power. It doesn't say the Son of Man came vindicating the righteous and defeating God's enemies. That's how Jews in Jesus' day thought the Son of Man was going to come. But that's not what it says. It says the Son of Man came, how? Eating and drinking. And they, again, the self-righteous religious people, say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Can you imagine? So eating and drinking, here's my point, eating and drinking with lost people in their homes was one of Jesus' primary methods for mission. So for us as Christ followers who live our lives joining Jesus on the mission that he's already doing, this can become one of our methods as well. And it's surprisingly simple, isn't it? Like, like living on mission with Jesus is not overly complicated. Just eat and drink, something we're already doing 14 to 21 times a week already, right? Just eat and drink, do something you're already doing with lost people. Jesus ate and drank intentionally with lost people. More specifically, he and us, when we're eating with our lost friends, talk to them. Ask about them. Get to know their story. Tell your story and over time share how Jesus has changed your life. And I have a question for us, family. What if every single one of us, just once a week, took one of the 14 to 21 meals we're already eating and eat one intentionally with someone who's far from God? A church of 150, however many people we are, that's 150 gospel opportunities a week. Can you imagine the impact that would have in our city the relationships that would be cultivated, the conversations and life change that would likely follow if each of us just once a week had a meal with a lost person in their home, at their table. I hope that's a challenge that we're willing to take up. So Jesus stays at Zacchaeus' house. Jesus eats at Zacchaeus' table. Let's see the result. Verse 8. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the the half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone, I restore it fourfold. So between verse 7 and 8, we're not given much detail of exactly what happened in that moment with Jesus and Zacchaeus' home, but it's obvious that something transformational happened. What an encounter this must have been, because we can see Zacchaeus' radical life change. So in his past, Zacchaeus had clearly defrauded many, many people. He cheated them. He extorted money from them. But his response, his repentance and restitution is over the top. He doesn't just offer to pay back what he took. 
or maybe add 6 to 10% interest to it, or even double it. Zacchaeus voluntarily initiates a fourfold restoration plan. He says, four times as much as I've taken from you, I will pay back. So here's an example. So Chris and Emma, hypothetically, say, moved to town three years ago. So naturally, I start collecting taxes from them. So three years ago, Chris and Emma paid me $1,000 of fake paper, green paper money, right? I was going to bring real stuff, but I don't trust all of you. So $1,000 three years ago, I extorted from Chris. Last year, I took another $1,000 from Chris. This year, I was generous and only took $1,000 still. So I've extorted $3,000 of fake paper money from Chris and Emma over the past three years, okay? Encounter with Jesus, my restitution, I hope you're getting my point here. 9,000, 10,000, I'll go extra slow for effect, 11,000, 12,000. Significantly more was returned than was initially taken. And not just for Chris and Emma, but for every single person in this room, I restored four times as much as I initially took. And on top of that, Zacchaeus went into his savings, his 401k, and he took half of what remained and gave that to the poor. This is over-the-top restitution as a result of a life-changing encounter with Jesus. Literally, Zacchaeus puts his money where his mouth is. He proves the sincerity of his repentance by making restitution far beyond what was required. Zacchaeus demonstrates outwardly the transformation that took place inwardly. Personal change leads to public change. Spiritual transformation has a social outworking. Through an encounter with Jesus, the the kindness of God had led Zacchaeus to repentance, which then overflowed into a desire to make restitution for the wrongs that he had done. In other words, Zacchaeus seeks to make amends as he pursues reconciliation with the people he's harmed. And this is significant because this is not something we do naturally, is it? Apart from an encounter with Jesus. So here's my plug for the morning. If the Spirit leads you in the fall to participate in this regen ministry that we're launching, um, it'll be Wednesday nights. There's an informational meeting August 5th. If the Spirit leads you to participate, there are specifically two steps in the process that deal with repentance and then making amends. And honestly, if you ask the people who were in the pilot group this past year, there were 16 of us, this was some of the most helpful teaching we had ever experienced on these two issues of repentance and amends. And to be honest, there were some significant steps of repentance and amends that took place in the lives of people in the pilot group. I would highly encourage you to consider Regen. Uh, Step six in particular addresses repentance, which is the, you would know this if you've been in church um, a while, it's the turning away from patterns of sin as we turn fully to Jesus. And at the end of this repentance step, each one of us wrote out a repentance plan, which is simply meant to help us put some traction to the steps we feel the Spirit leading us to take. And then in step nine, for amends, we do the same thing. We make a plan 
to make direct amends whenever possible with the people we have harmed. So Romans 12 provides some of the groundwork for this. It says, repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. So here it is. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. So this is the heartbeat of amends. If I've harmed you, if I've broken peace, I'm going to do whatever it takes to pursue restoration and reconciliation. As far as it depends on me, I am going to pursue reconciliation with you. So true repentance, as we see in the life of, of Zacchaeus, was seen in the way that he responded. He repents. He pursues amends on the journey towards reconciliation with the people he's hurt. But following Zacchaeus' repentant response, look at verse 9. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, for he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man, here's what this whole text has been, been driving to, the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. So Jesus here makes it very clear that he is the one who saves Zacchaeus. Salvation was not the result of Zacchaeus' repentance in his restitution. It was God's grace alone that saved him. But radical change in lifestyle took place after the salvation had occurred. Zacchaeus' change in lifestyle gives evidence to a rightly restored relationship with God. And this is true in our lives as well, right? When, when Jesus enters your life, you can't help but stay the same. I said that wrong. You can't help but change. You can't stay the same. True repentance is active. It's something that we do. But our duty is in response to what Christ has already done. True repentance reorients our lives and impacts areas that were once most important to us. Our jobs, our wealth, our status and security. And true repentance, uh, true, true repentance pushes us towards those that we've hurt to ask for forgiveness and pursue reconciliation. So when you encounter Jesus, you change. So family, I'd like to move towards some application here at this point. Um, I believe this morning the Spirit of God through the Word of God is pressing on us, the people of God, in, in two ways. And I'd encourage you to consider at least one of these two ways to take some steps this week as we continue to turn from sin and turn to Jesus. So first, the big idea of this morning's text is that Jesus is on a mission to seek and save lost people. Amen? If we've been lost, this has happened, and now we're found. Hallelujah. Praise his name. But there are more lost people that are still being invited into the fold. Jesus is on a mission to seek and save lost people, and he's invited each one of us to join him on that mission in this city in 2020. One of my favorite verses in John chapter 20, verse 21, it says this. It says, Jesus speaking to his disciples, says, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. Jesus' mission is now our mission. And Jesus' methods can become our methods. So like Jesus, in this story this morning, I'm going to give you five S's, if you like, 
cheesy church notes. Five S's. Like Jesus this morning, let's seek to see the lost people who are all around us. But let's pray and ask Jesus to help us see, open our eyes to see. And like Jesus, as you're passing through the city, so to speak, look for the lost people in your neighborhood, at your workplace, in the places you routinely go for coffee or meals or exercise. Look for lost people and pray for lost people. Ask Jesus every day when you go out of your house to put you in the right place at the right time to have an encounter with someone who does not yet know God. So seeing is the first step. But often, I'll I'll speak for myself, often I'm so busy and so consumed with myself, my, my schedule, my plans, that I don't slow down enough, that's the second S, slow down enough to see what's actually going on around me. Right in front of us, every day, Jesus is bringing lost people into our lives. So family, let's make it a practice to slow down enough to see the lost people. Let's learn from Jesus in this story. And then like Jesus, let's stop and speak. So part of living on mission is opening our mouths. As Christians, we initiate conversations, even when it's uncomfortable at times, even when it's inconvenient at other times. So today after church, if you're walking down the street and see a, see a shady rich guy up in the tree, start talking to him. Or wherever you go for lunch or whatever you do, there are lost people all around that we're being invited into start conversations with. And as we start those conversations, over time, friendships will form and develop. And, and over time, we share with them what Jesus has done in our lives, and then we invite them to see what Jesus might do in their lives. So family, let's be intentional here. Again, lost people are everywhere. Some lost people might not even know that they're lost. And we, as followers of Jesus, have the joy of joining Jesus on the mission that he's already doing around us. And just to remind, he, of course, does the saving. So our role is just to slow down enough to see, stop what we're doing to speak, and then to stay. Like Jesus, we stay with lost people. And and I mean two things by this. First, we don't give up on lost people. Salvation for some like Zacchaeus will be pretty quick in the moment. For others, it's going to be a longer process. So we stay with them. We, We don't give up on anyone ever. But also by staying with lost people, I mean this, that we go out where lost people are. We initiate relationships with lost people on their turf. Like Jesus, we we go into their homes and we eat at their tables. We don't make lost people come to us. We don't make them have to climb up trees just so that they can see Jesus. We don't make lost people jump out of their natural, comfortable environment to come with us to church. Is there anything wrong with inviting lost people to church? Absolutely not. But I don't think that's the first step. I think we go out where lost people are, and that's the first step of interaction. So perhaps for you, as you're thinking through this practically, it'll require a third place. So your home is your first place, right? Your work is your second place. 
many of us already have a third place that we go for, you know, interaction with people, a hobby, building relationships, a a, a coffee shop or a a place to eat that we regularly attend. That's a third place. Um, What if we looked to, if we have third place already, what if we look to evaluate and assess, does this third place put me in contact regularly with lost people? Or is this third place only about being with other Christians? So honestly, for me, this is something I'm working on now. In, in no way am I an expert in anything I've said this morning so far. Jesus is the expert, and I'm wanting to learn from him. But, but I struggle in this area because my second place, my work, is this church building. And I'm not sure if you're aware, but it's kind of a requirement for all my coworkers to be Christians. At least in this church, we're not in the practice of hiring non-Christian pastors. So my first place, my home, my, my wife is a believer. My second place, my work, all my coworkers are believers. So if I'm not careful, I can find everything I do all the time to be only with Christians. Is there anything wrong with being surrounded by Christians, other brothers and sisters who can encourage us in the faith? Absolutely not. But our mission is not to be with other Christians. Our mission is to go with those Christians out into the world, joining Jesus and seeking and saving the lost. So I'd invite you, would you pray for me in this as I work through what it looks like in my life? So our neighborhood, Ashley and I, are seeking to cultivate some friendships with lost people on our street, but for, it's gotta go beyond that, at least for me personally. I need to find a third place where I can regularly interact with people who are far from God. So if you could pray and help me, I'd, I'd appreciate that. So learning from the example of Jesus, we must go to and stay with sinners. But far too often, we as Christians are prone to separate from, Christ, uh, from sinners, right? We do our thing as our church family, and over time we find our lives surrounded by only Christians while lost people are still out there being lost. So this morning, first application, I believe Jesus is calling many of us to re-engage with the mission that he's already doing around us in this city, to seek and save lost people. So let's slow down enough to see, let's stop what we're doing to speak, and let's stay with, never give up on our friends who don't, know yet know, who don't yet know Christ. But for others this morning, the application point might be different. Maybe the Spirit has been just pushing on your heart that there's a specific area of sin in your life that needs to be repented of, or a, a relationship that you fractured because of something you've done that, needs to, that you need to pursue uh, reconciliation in. Um, if that's you, I'd invite you this morning to take a step. Allow the Spirit to lead you into repentance and start thinking through what an amends might look like. What do you need to do to, as far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all? And if you're not yet in Christ this morning, we would all invite you to Receive his invitation to salvation. He is calling to you this morning where you are in your sin, inviting you to a life that you can never have apart from him. So if that's you, we'd invite you to respond to Jesus this morning. And if you have no idea, to, no idea where to start with repentance or pursuing amends, um, if you just need someone to talk to and process things with, um, I'd invite you, we as a pastoral team would invite you to reach out and ask for help. Right? If, you're, if you're in a small group, talk to your small group leader. Maybe that's the first step. Or approach a staff member, a pastor, or an elder. 
there is no shame in asking for help. And it's actually the starting point from which Jesus can bring growth and change in our lives. Now here at Melanie Park Church, through Regen and other avenues, we're working to cultivate a culture where it's okay to not be okay. It's okay for you to not be okay. But at the same time, it's not okay for you to stay there. Because we believe that Jesus is here. And Jesus is alive. And through life-changing encounters with him, we can find life and joy and peace that we could never experience apart from him. So this morning, we invite the band up. We're going to sing one more song. And the first line of this song says, lost are saved. Find their way at the sound of Jesus' great name. So I'd encourage each one of us, as we sing this song today, Do it through two lenses. One, sing it in worship to Jesus, the God who has saved you, the God who maybe even now is seeking to save you. So sing in worship to Jesus, but also sing it in prayer to Jesus with one of your lost friends in mind. So in worship to Jesus, in prayer for one of your lost friends, let's stand together and we'll sing this final song. He has a great name, doesn't he? the Savior, the Defender, the one and only. So this morning, family, I'd invite you, what response are you going to take? Is it a response of repentance for a sin that you've been harboring? Is it a response of pursuing reconciliation with someone that you've harmed? And as a church at large, I would love for us to continue cultivating an environment here where we are joining Jesus on his mission. Not just having a mission where it's all about us, in our little comfortable communities, but joining Jesus in the work that he's doing in Lubbock, which is to seek and save lost people. So family, let's slow down enough even today to see, let's stop what we're doing and be willing to speak, and let's stay with our lost friends who Jesus is pursuing. Love you all. Have a great day.